You're listening to What Won't We Say. We believe that we are better in community and that all people want to be known. That true authenticity can only be reached through honesty and vulnerability. This is a judgment-free zone and a shame-free space where individuality is encouraged and celebrated. We are your hosts, Sonia Mastic and Jen Kinney. So today we have on the show Dr. Alyssa Davies. She is a doctor of physical therapy. She is a CrossFit athlete. She is an Olympic lifter, and she also swims. And at one point, she swam with Olympians. And we'll talk about a little more of that later, unpack that a little bit, but welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. So I heard here in your bio, I read that you are born and raised in Monmouth, Illinois, I I am and I was. Where yes. the hell is Monmouth, <laughs> oh. Illinois? Well, it's in West Central Illinois. So I'd have to, when I tell people, it's about three and a half hours southwest of Chicago and about three and a half hours north of St. Louis. So I'm about 15, 20 minutes from Iowa, from the Mississippi River. So I'm out in the middle of farm country, to, to be honest. Do you know about how many people lived in this town? Um... At the last census, I think... Your dad will be upset if you don't know this. Oh, I know. I'll, her da- her I'll, dad's the mayor of I'll Monmouth. catch grief for this if I don't have this number on point. Mm. I, I want to say like around like 10,000 people. So, I thought I grew up in a small town. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. no. But so your dad was the mayor or oh, is the mayor? No, my dad is the mayor. My my dad's full-time job, he has uh, a CPA practice. He's a public accountant. So he What's is the practice pra- called? Um Kavanaugh Davies Blackman and Cramblet. All right. Uh, wow. he's been a part of that for years and then back in 2005 apparently he had the itch to run for mayor and he ran for mayor and he's been mayor ever since. So I thought he had lost his mind like wanting to like take on another like job on top of like an already like full-time job as a CPA but now I mean he seems to like it it's more or less you know his way of feeling like that's his way to give back to the community because my dad was born and raised there like there are lots of generations of my family that have been born and raised there so what was it like being the child of the mayor of the small town well what was it like just growing up in this town well, I mean, set the stage for us. I mean, it, it was your typical like small town. Like I, I was fortunate enough to have like both sets of my grandparents living in like my my hometown, along with my great grandmother. So I mean, it was just a very like close knit like community. People would, you know, do anything to help out their neighbor, um, and you know, I felt you know where you could kids could be kids. You could go ride your bike on the street, like play. In the neighborhood, you didn't really have to worry about, you know, the things that you would have to worry about today, you know, with with what goes on with, like, violence and things like that. So can can you tell the uh, listeners uh, what your bike was uh, as a kid? I believe it was a Care Bear bike. I love the story. And I believe I irritated <laughs> the neighbors so much across the street because I would be riding my bike early in the morning and just screaming at the top of my lungs, singing some absurd song that I can't even remember. <laughs> and apparently they were yelling out their windows to tell like telling me to like shut up. So 
And, and <laughs> truth and disclosure, uh, Alyssa and I are very good friends, and so I have a lot of the dirt on her. Actually, I have all the dirt on her. <laughs> I think you even have a picture of me sitting on that bike. I, I do. I have seen it. I don't have it. Your mom had it, but yeah, uh, well. but but she did show it to me many yes. times. <laughs> yeah. So. We unpacked in the beginning of um, the introduction that uh, you have been athletic your whole life. Mm -hmm. So what's the first sport that you got into? The first sport I got into was swimming. I really, you know, I think that um, that was probably like the the first like official like sport that I I did. Um, And it all started off with like swim lessons and my mom, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, I could swim. And then it just kind of evolved into this this career. You know, once she saw that, like, I had some talent and, like, then, like, the next thing after swim, swim lessons was, like, swim team. And then from there, everything just kind of, like, took off after, after that. How old were you when you started I started swimming? competing when I was six. Wow. I'm a mother of two eight-year-olds. Who can, no offense to them, um, <laughs> barely wipe their own butts <laughs> at this point. No, they can't. But but it's amazing to me to think that at six years old, any child is competitively doing anything, let alone swimming. So yeah. when did you start lessons? When did your mom discover that this was a, a natural gift? Well, my mom was a swimmer herself. So I think she probably swam every single day with me while I was in utero. So I mean, that <laughs> maybe had something to do with it. And I, I think she just kind of got me in the water like as, as early as like she she could. So know? was she a professional swimmer? No, she wasn't a professional swimmer. But you know, back in the Back in the day, you know, women didn't have as many, like, opportunities, you know, for, like, sports and things like that. So, like, she did, like, the YMCA or the YWCA, I should say, it was swimming and, you know, she that's how, you know, she got her swimming career, like, started. And that's kind of where it kind of, I don't want to say ended because she still swims today, but I mean, like, for... In terms of like advancement, that's as far as like she she, she went with. Does it, she still so. teach as well? Yes, my mom still teaches swim lessons. She's still very very active in in that as well. So I think she teaches one or two nights a week out at the the local YMCA back home. So kind of start moving forward then, because um, we can unpack a million stories sure. about your hometown that I actually oh, yeah. really like. Like I love the the story about the fact that your grandfather owned a junkyard. It's still there, and it yeah. has all this historical vehicles and memorabilia and it's such a big part of the town Mm -hmm. so it's i I love that story it's very um you want to share a little bit about that um well other than the fact that like that was like the highlight of like when i was in school like that the highlight of the weekend was going down the junkyard and being around like grandpa and and my dad because my dad also worked down there too to to help out and getting to sit on my dad's lap while he was like working the crane and everything and picking up the cars (laughs) and yeah so i mean that that was that was cool or or watching um, Joe, one of my grandfather's like workers at the time, like fix the radiators because I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Where like they would fix the radiators and he would dunk it back in the tank and it make like this hissing sound, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. But but yeah, so that's those are just some of the memories, you know. From so you kind of move forward a little bit and get, take you to college. So you get a scholarship for swimming. I did. I was fortunate enough that I got a full ride to go swim Division One from Bowling Green State University. So did you 
Did you go to Bowling Green because that was the only opportunity for a scholarship, or did you go there to leave home? No, I had other opportunities, like in within like the state of Illinois. But you know, when you at least how I looked at it is, I started competing when I was six, and in order to get like to be involved in like some like the better competition, like we were always like traveling almost every weekend to a swimming. It was usually up around like the Chicago area. So I mean. At that point, I just felt like I had literally swam in every single major pool that was in Illinois, and I just needed to just kind of, like, get out and just kind of, like, do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and just go someplace new. And, you know, Bowling Green was a good fit for me because the size of the town that Bowling Green was in was very similar to a neighboring town um, of, like, Galesburg, Illinois. Right. So, like, it was very comfortable for me, and I felt, you know, very at home, and I didn't like feel like um i would kind of get lost sure easier transition yes yeah yeah i mean because coming from a town of ten thousand people you you wouldn't want to go to a town with two million well it's not like i wanted to go swim in ohio state where like (laughs) my hometown could have literally fit probably like 10 times within the campus you know like at least you know and just be so completely like overwhelmed and like just not really knowing like what to do yeah So as you're motoring along, you finish school. You you so you you go to college for to become my. I originally started off as a pre physical therapy major, and then around my sophomore year, I decided to switch to athletic training, sports medicine, simply because of all the like traveling we were doing with. Um, with the meets and everything and how long the season was. And then two, like Bowling Green didn't have its own like physical therapy program. So, and, and the closest one that they kind of worked with was at the university of Toledo at the medical college of Ohio at the time. So, and they were only like 25 spots. So you had like all the pre PT students at like the university of Toledo and all the pre PT students from BGSU competing for these 25 spots. And if you didn't have like a 4.0 GPA, you can just like, Right. Forget about it. So then that's where I made the decision to tra- to um, change my major to something that was that would parallel physical therapy, mm-hmm. you know, that had a lot of the same like knowledge and background. And like too, like I love sports, like I love being involved in like working with athletes and whatnot. So it was, you know, a good fit for me because I really, you know, enjoyed it and and just, you know, thrived, I guess is a good way to to put it. So digging a little deeper into swimming, what kept you swimming? Was it the fact that you had a scholarship? Did you, did you love it the whole time? Was it a was it a love-hate relationship? Well, to be honest, like I reached a point probably when I was I want to say around like 13 or 14 years old where I had to figure out like why I was really swimming, like who I was swimming for, was I swimming for myself or was I swimming for my mom? Yeah, because I mean, let's break down a little bit. Like, how long were the um, the practices? Like, how because you had to, I would imagine you had to sacrifice a lot to continue to swim. Yeah. So when I was younger, like basically, we just had like one practice a day where it was you know maybe like hour and a half, like two hours, like tops. Um, but then you know, as I got into it and as I started to get better. Um, like my mom like noticed that like okay like I had like a lot of potential to like go somewhere with this so then all the other activities I was in kind of got you know 
pushed to the wayside or I just didn't do those anymore so I could just focus on swimming. Right. Like my gymnastics, baton, you know, just things that would just allow me just to be like a normal kid and just try a whole bunch of things. But that kind of got pushed to the wayside probably by the time I was like like nine or ten years old. Yeah. Did you feel like an active participant in that decision? I think I was too young enough at the time to really not, you know, know. You know, like, did I – I love swimming and I love doing everything else, but then it was kind of like – you know, mom says, like, well, why don't we just take some time and we'll just focus on swimming for right now? You know, and that's what that's what I did. But, like, the right now, like, ended up being, like, the next, like... 18 years. Eight, you know, yeah. the next yeah. eight years. So, um, but, you know, eventually, you know, like, right around that 13, 14-year-old age, like, I... I did not swim a state a state meet that, like, one year. And, like, it just about, like killed her <laughs> was it out of defiance or you just you no because like i at that point like there was just something like inside of me that like i had to figure out like who i was doing this for was i really doing it for myself or was have, or was i doing this for my mother you know and just to like appease her and and then like i had to really just kind of just you know figure it all out and then you know when i realized that like yes i missed it yes you know like i really got enjoyment out of it then it's like okay like i know i'm in this for the right reason and then you know, it's like, okay, you know, let's just, you know, continue onward and, and upward. And then next thing you know, you, you at that point, you have a scholarship. Mm-hmm. You're not coming from well, so a so scholarship is, is necessary to get the education you want. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. It, it is, yep. And so this is what, uh, again, I, I have some of this pre-knowledge, and this is what I found so fascinating that I would have never guessed Tell the listeners how in college how much you practiced, how much you worked towards swimming. So this has been this is absolutely bananas. You know, basically, you know, when you're in college and you're a student athlete, like you have two responsibilities: a go to class number one, and b you show up when you practice. Like that's pretty much all you really have time to like do. I mean, yes, you do have like you can have like a little bit of a social life, but really like that's just your main focus is go to school to get the education and then to be there to, to do whatever, you know, sport you're, you know, you're a part of. And so morning practices were about, you know, two hours, give or take, like if you were in the weight room beforehand and then you would have to, then we would have to go to the pool after. So, and then afternoons would be like anywhere from two and a half to three hours. So, and that was at least five days a week. And then Saturdays, we could have like four or five hour practices. How often did, how often did you have meets? Um, meets didn't start until October. So we started, you know, training like right when like class started, you know, mm-hmm. in, in August, September. So then you're training and then meets start in October and then they go all the way up through, you know, end of February, beginning of March. How how often did, was it weekly, monthly? Um, just it, it, it just kind of depended. Like we would have a meet at least like every at least every two weeks. Sometimes we had meets that were like back to back and like weekends, and we usually did like one big invitational, like in December, like before um, you know winter break, um, and then. 
And that was, you know, usually about about it. I can't really remember per se if we had one every weekend, but we usually like tried to swim each team that was in the conference at the time, like sure. at least like once. So, and I guess the point I'm making is that not only are you you practicing all this time, but you're actually actively competing, which is the point. Yeah, of it all. And so it's interesting. So now, um, one of the uh, I would guess to say uh, I don't want to uh, put words in your mouth, but uh, for anyone, uh, including myself, I would think the highlight of your life is that you're a swimmer. You end up swimming against Olympians. What's what's going on there? What happened? Tell us how um, that happened. So it was, um, like my I was a fifth year senior, and you know I was at you know conference champs and. Swam swam really well, and I was able to make a qualifying times to go and swim at the the U.S. Open and, and Senior Nationals the the following year. And you know, I'm just like, well, you know, I looked at the fact, I just kind of looked at it and be just like, well, technically, this is the end of like my my college swimming career, but yet I have the opportunity to go and like do two meets that like I will never probably ever get this opportunity again. So that's when I like sat down with my coach and we figured out like what, you know, to do. And then basically like I just stayed on like another year and I just trained. Okay. Like I, like I didn't train with the team, but like she, like my coach like trained me to go and do those meets. So you end up doing the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. And so this, this to me, being an athlete myself I, I, you and I have had private conversations about it, and you slough it off. It's like, oh, it's just something that I did. It's like I made a pot roast one night. It <laughs> came out really, really well. But the fact of the matter is, is that not a lot of people would know, would experience something at that caliber. So I want you to really tell the listeners what it's like when you wake up in the morning. How, I, pardon my language, how do you not crap your pants that day? I mean, you know, like, this is the swim of your life. You're swimming against Olympians. What's the day look like? I'm dying well, to know this. Well, I mean, you you kind of have like the 20 plus years to kind of work through like all the the getting like your, you know, trying to not crap your pants and everything <laughs> out before like the, the big swims and everything. So, um, you know, it's by the time, you know, I got there, you know, I had just kind of like learned that like there was just like a routine that like I had to like go through that just kind of was just something that was just like necessary that would kind of like calm me down just to keep me like even keel and usually that involved like going for like a a warm-up swim or just a a swim to just kind of go get loosened up a little bit like the like the day before I would do actually two of those one in the morning and then one in the in the evening just to you know just kind of clear my head just get a good feel of the water kind of get accustomed to like the the pool and everything because all like not one pool is like the same so like really no no they're 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 all a little different i know that's i know that sounds weird but it's like it's a square with water in it i I honestly would never (laughs) think that like it it feels different when you said that i'm like get the feel of the pool it's water (laughs) well i yeah but it's it's just kind of like one of those things you know just being like a swimmer like you just intuitively like you feel the water because that's how you are like you know moving yourself like through the water is like by how you how you feel and how you pull and like just trying to like um just kind of get your bearings in like a new environment and and then you know after that go go back to the hotel get a good good dinner stretch out go to sleep get a decent amount of sleep and then 
wake up, race day, like get to the pool, warm up. Okay, so you're on the block. You're on the block. You're ready to jump in the water. How are you honestly feeling? Are your knees knocking? Are you like, are you like freaking out, or are you like waves of freak out and then calm? For me, like, I know I'm going, and this this may sound weird to some people, but I know I'm going to swim well. Like, if I'm nervous, not like knee knocking nervous, but like if I've kind of like just got a little bit of like the the jitters per se sure because if i don't have the jitters then it's like this isn't gonna go <laughs> this isn't gonna go well so but then it's you know there's a fine line between it's not gonna go well if i don't have jitters and it's not gonna go well if i'm like overly just like you know. Almost panicked. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, so. a, it's the same thing with music. People say, "Do you, do you, you know when did you lose the the nerves, the butterflies?" It's like if I don't have butterflies before I go on, I'm I'm getting lazy it, and not worrying about it. You know exactly. Which, and then mistakes are going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then at that point, you know, when you're up on the block, and then you know the the starter says like take your mark, and then you hear like the the beep, then it's just like you just go, and then from that point on, like you just rely on like all the the months of training you have put in, and you just you just go like you just don't think you just go yeah and then that's where you just have to like kind of like trust the process you went through trust your training trust your coach and just kind of let everything go like just kind of put everything else out of your mind and just go and that's a, the the trust the process is a big one because it, we're not in a, in a culture anymore that trust anything and so i it's a very interesting and, and um um I remember even when you and I started training together in the beginning, and uh, when we met, she was actually my physical therapist, and that's how we met. And she was rehabbing my shoulder, and I remember you even saying that to me then. You you had mentioned it in the in the rehab, you know, just trust the process, and I was just like, she's out of her mind. But now I understand, being an athlete myself, you have to absolutely believe and trust what your coach is giving you to do, or why bother working with them? Yeah, you have to completely buy in because if you're always like sitting there, like second guessing or questioning. It's you're not going to get to like where you want to be. And then that's where, you know, if you have concerns and that's where you have very you know frank discussions with your coach, like, you know, this is kind of what I'm feeling. This is what's going on. Like, do we need to change things up? And then, you know, you look to them to have, you know, because they've been, this is what they're trained to do. This is what they know. So you just kind of just hand everything over and and give it to them and that's something that honestly like I didn't learn until I got to college. Hmm, interesting. Because back, you know, when I was just to kind of go back a little bit, um when I swam in high school, like my high school didn't have a swim team. My high school didn't even recognize swimming as a sport. Hmm. So um what I ended up doing is uh, swimming for girls in Illinois was a fall sport. So I ended up playing volleyball in the fall to help with conditioning and training. And then mm. I would go and swim on my own, like either before school or after volleyball practice, like to get myself conditioned for the sectional swimming, which we used to qualify for state. And then we would just have to hope that each year that we didn't make it far enough in the playoffs for volleyball that it would conflict with the sectional swimming. Mm. So luckily I was lucky all four years and <laughs> – there wasn't an issue, so then we go swim the sexual swimming and then go qualify for state. Wow. <laughs> it totally sounds like she's saying sexual swim meet. Uh, every time, by the way. <laughs> every time. Every time. Like, Sorry. ooh, okay. No, no. no. Do, do you want to enunciate that? I know, right? clear? Sectional. Okay, good. There we go. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> like a sectional of furniture. Yeah. Get your minds out of the gutter, people. Yeah. 
So moving on, then you end up you end up um, swimming still, and did uh, am I remembering this right? Did you end up coaching at OU for a little bit? I as a swim coach, I did. So after I got done swimming at the U.S. Open and Senior Nationals, I went and I joined the Masters team in Ohio, and I went and I swam short course um, nationals that year in. April or May, I could have the the month wrong, but then that's where I set like a U.S. national record for the 50 meter breaststroke for the 18 to 24 year old wow. know, age group that lasted for over five years. I think it got broke in like 2010 or 11. So and I set it back in 2005. That's great. So. So yeah, and then after swimming, then I actually ended up going back to school and getting my physical therapy assistant degree up in Toledo. Then once that was done, then I made the move from Ohio to Michigan, worked in downtown Detroit at the Rehab Institute of Michigan, working with uh, spinal cord injured patients at the Center for Spinal Cord Injury Recovery. I did that for a year, and then at that point, I'm just like, I need to go back to PT school, like, because it was just, like, because, you know, I wanted more autonomy. I wanted, like, more say in, like, the, the treatment plans and being a, a physical therapy assistant. Like, you are involved in, like, treatments and things, but you're not, like, the one that's coming up with the plan. You're not the one that's leading the direction of, like, where the rehab needs to go. So sure, that's where I just, like, no, I need to go back. So then that's when I went back to OU. And then, yes, to answer your question, I ended up being a graduate assistant for the men's and women's swim team at OU for two years while I was there at um, working on my doctorate degree. So then how do you end up getting to from there to CrossFit? Well, it was because after I graduated OU, I ended up taking like my first job over in the Lansing area. And it was probably like the worst job ever as a new grad, but it's <laughs> such a valuable like learning experience of like what not to do and like things to look out for and like future jobs that I ended up like leaving Michigan and going back to Ohio, like and working for, in a community hospital in the Northwestern corner of the the state. And there, like, I still swam a little bit. That's where I kind of got into running and then just getting back and just, like, just the weight training. Because I'd always, like, kept up with, like, the weight training, but it was more like the gym type of, like, you know, weight training. Nothing, like, CrossFit related. Sure. Um, and then I uh, met up with a, a trainer at one of the gyms who was kind of, like, getting into doing, like, CrossFit. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he would, like, design, like, workouts for me. And then that's kind of how I got into it and kind of got a taste of it. And then when I decided to leave Ohio and come back to to Michigan, then that's when, like, I looked for, like, a CrossFit gym to actually belong to back in 2013, 2014 when I, when I moved when I came back to Michigan. And then more recently, you changed your focus more to Olympic lifting? Yeah. So my... You know, CrossFit was great, but, like, there's just something, I guess, for me personally, where, like, just having to, like, really, like, find, like, a, a challenge. Not that CrossFit wasn't challenging, but I really took to, like, the the Olympic lifts as just, like, how, like, technical they were and, like, how um, how challenging they were because of, like, how technical they were. So then that's when I still did CrossFit, but then my focus 
became more Oli lifting probably around like 2016. So what I find really interesting about that is that you didn't just take on CrossFit. You 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 became certified to be a coach, correct? Mm-hmm. And so you didn't just swim. You you went as far as you could to actually go to the U.S. Open. It's it's sort of like this whole this whole um, arc of of going as far as you possibly can with everything, which says a lot about your character. But it also, I think, develops this this sort of like resiliency of you know. There's a um, I don't remember who said the quote, but there's a quote of um, the best athletes are the best because they know how to suffer. So it's this thing of like you can really just like beat the hell out of yourself and keep going, where other people just you know it's not that they're not as tough, but like one thing happens, they're like oh, I'm done, I'm out, I'm out. You know <laughs> that that was painful. That was a horrible next day. So. What's this? What's your why? What's this driving you that you you will you I I see you 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 will punish the hell out of yourself to do sports that you love and that makes no sense into most people's minds. I it's just I, I like I I love to do that. Like I love to like push myself and challenge myself to see how far I can take myself. That's that's where like I I like to go, and sometimes that's come back to like bite me in the ass. You know, yeah. but so how how so? <laughs> you can't get away with that statement. I need now. to hear some failures. Right. I'm over here thinking about donuts as you guys are talking <laughs> about this. Being the non-athlete in the crew, well, I mean, just you know, just always like pushing and pushing and driving and driving and just like just go go go, and then not really like listening to like my body mm-hmm. when it's just like, hey, we need a break. Just like I can remember. Like before, like I kind of made the switch over to to Oli lifting. I remember, like I did a two twenty power clean, and I felt my my hamstring, you know, tweak a little bit. And I was like, oh, you know, no no big deal. So then, what do I do? I put two twenty five on the bar, <laughs> and then try and then lift that. And do I lift it? Yes, but then I end up like hurting like my hamstring even more. So I mean, it's just that type of like mentality that like did does not serve me well. Like, Every lifter listening right now is like, yep, yeah, no, I've done it because I'm looking. I'm like. You 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 rehab me after I've done it, you know. So but so so that's what I mean. Like that drive sometimes doesn't like hasn't like served me well because it's like I just instead of just like okay, like we're just gonna stop and just like go everything against like what a physical therapist, what I would tell you as a physical right. therapist, you know, like to like just chill and just like let it calm down and we'll rehab. I do the exact opposite. Do you feel like you're? It sounds like you're learning. Do you feel like you're actually starting to focus more on your own self-care? Um, well, this past year has kind of made had actually forced me to do that. Oh, because tell me. up until then, like, nope, I would just like trudge right on through and just like just... what happened in this last year? Well, let's see here. Um, I end up developing like really severe migraine headaches and then ended up having like seizure like episodes mm-hmm. and that completely just life as i knew it just stopped how long did you deal with that she's she's currently looking at me because i actually was with her <laughs> through most of it so i mean like i was the one more awake through most of it yes yeah so i i remember like october of last year is kind of like when it all started and then it was just like being in and out of the hospital so many times because like they could never get my migraine to break and then it would just kind of, then it would escalate and then I couldn't keep food down and I'd become dehydrated and then my vision would go and it was just like this roller coaster of like up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's like whenever I would feel like I would kind of get my feet underneath me a little bit, then like 
it would just all be just like wiped away, you know. So it was just always like this constant like starting, restarting, you know. And I never like developed like any like mo- momentum, and then until like just finally just like you know being like I surrender, like you know, and just you know be just like you know I I don't know what what to do at this point, and you know it just. Because even though I, you've made the the comment that I was you know resilient and I just you know kind of kept my wits about me through that whole thing. Like I cannot tell you how many times like I like in my hospital bed at night like I just sobbed. Yeah, because I, I yeah. was like, "What the hell happened to my life? Like, and what the hell like happened? Like, and why can't like anybody like figure this out? Like, why you know you just start to like ask all these questions like why, why, why and and, you know, and then you just felt like, you know, people weren't taking you seriously. And it's like, no, this is like a legitimate issue. Like, I'm not making this up. Like, I'm not like this isn't anxiety induced. This isn't like stress or like anything like that. This is all like this is real and this is happening. And why am I you know, why can I not get this figured out? And that was a frustrating thing because I'm used to like, well, I'm, I shouldn't say used to, but like I'm the type of person where like I have to figure things out. And if I can't figure things out, then like that just kind of like. It bothers me. Sure. But then I, I realized throughout this whole experience, though, is that there's some things I'm never going to be able to find the answer out to. Yeah. So I just have to let it go. And, and be clear, though, resilience isn't not sobbing in your hospital bed. It's the fact that I watch. It's the fact that I, <clears throat> I, I personally watch you have probably 50 of these different episodes that were very uh, seizure like. And you did exactly what you said. You got back up, you know, like, and you can say, like, when we were in the moment, you're like, I didn't have a choice. You did have a choice. Actually, you could have crumbled. You could have, you could have hid at home. You could have not gotten another job. You could have, you know, because it, it uprooted your whole life. But yeah. resiliency is breaking down. It's crying. It's sobbing. It's saying, why the hell is this going on? And then just getting back up and doing it again. Yeah. What, what's that, that quote, like, fall down, like, what is it? Yeah, fall, fall down four times, get up five. Yeah. You know, something like so, that. So, I mean, yeah. like, and that's just how... Like, and just stopping was, like, never really an issue. And I, I think some of that's just, like, the drive that I developed from, like, just a young age and just, like, being involved in, like, you know, the, like, sports and just, you know, just, you just learn, learn that. But, you know, with that being said, like, everything kind of needs to have balance. So so I um want to ask you. Some some of the harder questions of the time that you're in the hospital is what I want listeners to hear is your story of how you were treated as a woman in healthcare. Oh boy, you know to be honest, can I swear on here? You can swear. Okay, like it's pretty shitty. Yeah, like it is amazing to me, like how especially like if you're dealing with like male doctors, like how little regard they have for like what you have to say and what when you're like sitting there telling them like how you're feeling and the first thing out of their mouth is like it's stress it's anxiety Mm -hmm. it's like oh you know you're just having like a panic attack that's what i kept hearing is like oh you're just having a panic attack i was like no it's not a panic attack like there's something more that's like going on if it's a panic attack why can i not see if it's a panic attack like why am i having like these horrible like migraine headaches where like i can't even function you know it's like well, and it's amazing to me. You are a doctor. So on top of this, if you think about 
the fact that as a doctor, you are in this system as a patient, and now you have people who are looking at you with this age-old sort of 1950s perspective, the lady's just having a, you know, She's just having a bad day. She's having her period. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? No, pretty much. I mean, because, like, if I were, like, a male and I had, like... A dick and balls between my legs. I mean, shit would have happened like, like lickety split. Like, all right. So let me break this down for you. You, you were actually, and this isn't to be funny. You were unconscious. So, this is one of the many trips to the hospital. Um, she was having seizures. The medics came to her home, inject tons of injections. They can't, they can't, they can't wake you up at all. They can't bring you around. They keep injecting you with more and more. We get to the hospital, and the doctor says, and I quote, "Oh, she's back again. Like it's you know an inconvenience." And mind you, across the hall, a man came in with a cut finger, not a severed finger, not missing a digit. Not, and they were on him like flies on honey. Like they were they were treating him like the word. So they were like stitching him up there immediately. And she's lying in the bed. I'm holding her hand. We're like, I'm just like, you know, they're coming. Everything's going to be OK. I don't know if anything's going to be OK, but that's what you tell your friend when they're really sick, you know. And and they what they ended up doing for her so all her vitals were wacky she still couldn't see had double vision they sent in a psychiatrist that was the treatment they gave you are no kidding I, we me. are i'm not kidding no. you they sent in a psychiatrist where was this Beaumont, can you say Royal Oak. Beaumont, Royal uh-huh. Oak. yeah wow so medics yeah. worked on her for 20 minutes just to make her stable enough to transport her got her to the hospital for about the eighth visit and they sent a psychiatrist that was their answer yeah so needless to say, after that whole experience, like I never, I, I didn't go back. I ended up like going to Henry Ford because, and that's where luckily I was able to, you know, find a really good vascular neurologist that like knew exactly what I was talking about, like had like empathy for me and could completely like sympathize with everything that like I had gone through because it's like, no, these are all very real symptoms. These are not something that are like, manifestations like in your head because like he just like listed off like you know all the reasons like why you know and it was finally nice to feel like finally somebody like hears me number one number two doesn't think i'm crazy and number three like knows how to treat it because every time i went back to beaumont they just kept giving me the same concoction of drugs over and over and over again no matter how many times like we would tell them like it doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't work so then Well, and I want to unpack this a little bit because I think it's valuable to our listeners to kind of talk Mm -hmm. through this. Because what I find, I'm not in medicine, but I grew up with a mother who's a nurse and I grew up very aware of the failings and shortcomings of medicine. Mm -hmm. I had a cancer diagnosis when I was 18. They forgot to give me anti-nausea drugs the first time they did my uh, chemotherapy. I mean, lots and lots of different things I learned through the years. And one of the most frustrating things that I find when I talk to other friends or family members who are going through the medical system, the first thing I always say to them is you have to advocate for yourself. And people want to be nice and they want to be trusting and they want to believe in the doctors. So how long, and and here you are a doctor, and I know it's in physical therapy, but you're still a medical professional. How long did it take you? Like how long were you in the one system with these doctors before you moved into the other system? And what got you to move? And what would you like suggest to people who are listening to this, who are maybe dealing with something where, you know, they don't have an answer to a medical problem and their professionals who they're working with are are not coming up with the answers. 
and they think, well, maybe I should just give up. No, I mean, for me, it was just that, you know, I wasn't going to take like, well, we don't know what's going on for an answer. So that's where, you know, I just kept, you know, like they're thinking like there has to be somebody out there that like knows like more about this. And then just after like all the repeated dealings with like Beaumont and then I think it was when like we tried to get in to see one of the Beaumont neurologists and we couldn't get in because I had missed my prior appointment because I was in the hospital that they wouldn't like schedule me. Oh, you just said Beaumont neurologist. Say no more. Yeah, this whole thing with Beaumont. Cause oh, my gosh. When she went to Henry Ford Neurology, it was like it was like a different planet that we yeah. were on. I mean, and we're not like doing a commercial. No, we're no, not no, ripping on no, people. No, but, but my son went through this system, and that would be a whole other show. Yeah, because the, the minute like I got to like Henry Ford, like everything was different. Like they had hospitalists there that were like taking care of like all the patients that were in the hospital. And then like I met with like an actual like neurologist like within like three days. Yeah. You got on a Monday and you saw him on Friday. Yeah. I remember that. Three days. So it's like, you know, it was just like, I'm just like, wow, you know, this is, this is nice. So what led you there? Did you, did you make the decision like, this isn't working? I'm going somewhere else. Did somebody recommend that? We just like started like looking through like health grade reports, like to find like neurologists that were like in the the area. So you took control of that. Yes, you made the With the help of like Sonia to like try to like find like some other people to help because it's like, I just wasn't going to like take like this group of like neurologists that like Beaumont has like doing all their neurology for them. Like I wasn't going to like take that answer because it's like that to me, like it's all the answers they were giving me is kind of like what we would like call like in physical, physical therapy, like a garbage term where you just kind of like lump everything in like thoracic outlet syndrome. That's kind of a garbage term for like more specific things that could be going, you know? So I was just like, no, because this is because I knew well enough by now, well enough to know, like, this is not how anybody should be treated. Like, that's having, like, any type of, like, medical issue, whatever. You just don't treat people this way. So, and there are answers out there, but you just have to keep, like, pressing forward and moving on until you you find somebody that's going to, like, help you get the answer. Not necessarily that you want to hear, but, like, an answer to, like, what is, like, fully like going on and helping you understand like why this is happening and there's a difference in mentality so then the first night that um that you were brought to henry ford you were unconscious uh for a lot of it and they brought down um the er doctor and then the er doctor did what you should be done which he came he said i don't really know what this is and he brought down six other doctors and he said um we will we will we will email out to other hospitals to other surgeons and different networks because we don't really know what this is and i said you know i said everything that that had been done at beaumont and and he said the mentality is very different he says the mentality at other uh, networks is that uh, hospitals is that if we can't figure it out it's your fault oh. and here if we can't figure it out it's our fault we need to keep searching that's amazing yeah and that was that was the difference like so it was like you know they could they beaumont couldn't understand that she was going from migraines from October, November, December, and then them turning into seizure-like events because they they weren't technically seizures, but to them she was she they they called a psychi- psychiatrist and then immediately at Henry Ford they fix it. But I, th- I think you learn though, like the difference is there. One of them is that Henry Ford employs their doctors and Beaumont does not. Mm. 
And so you get around the clock care and you get into people right away. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, cause when I, cause Dr. Modi was my neurologist when I was at like Henry Ford and like, he was like, you know, top notch, like very concerned, like always checking on me. And like, he even, you know, had, would I even like met with him? Like, the first time he came into my room, like he already had like several different like plans, like drawn up of like how we're going to attack this. Like we could do like this combination of drugs to see if we can get your migraine to break or we can do or we can try this. He's like, but like there's ways to break it. So, I mean, and he was like the first doctor that actually like broke my migraine and like gave me relief for like days, like from not having like the pain, the the seizure like episodes like nothing and i'm just like oh my gosh this is kind of what it feels like to kind of be normal again you know even though like i was kind of like hopped up on like the the drugs and everything <laughs> but but it's like okay finally like there this isn't like this isn't me like so like i felt validated at that point that it wasn't something that like was wrong with like me that like i had done something you know wrong you know but it's it was just that you know, finally, like somebody is like taking me seriously. And that is where the resiliency comes in, because I want the listeners to imagine what it's like to have a migraine for four months. So the worst headache of your life that you've ever had and no reprieve for four months straight. Well, and it's hard to understand a migraine if you haven't had a migraine. Yeah, I have them triggered by uh, cashew nuts. And it literally like it puts you on the floor and you're dead. Yeah, for like six hours, you can't function. So I can't even imagine that going on. Yeah, it's for ex- months on end. Yeah, and explain to to the listeners what your migraine was, because because I've never heard of a migraine quite as so when you first went in, in October, your your oh, actual symptoms. When, oh, when I first went in, in October, I honestly thought I was having a stroke because I woke up from a dead sleep with like the worst headache I had ever had like in my whole entire life throbbing pounding the whole right side of my face was numb my right arm was numb like I didn't know what was going on I was dizzy I was disoriented like I didn't even like know like what the hell was happening and I'm just like okay this isn't good so then I like had to I managed to somehow get myself downstairs without injuring myself too badly I think I maybe like missed a few steps on the way down but, um, but then like, yeah. And then like, I, I ended up like getting to like the hospital and that's kind of like how the, this all like started was just something like so bizarre and so like alarming to me. Like, cause I literally thought I was having a stroke and, no- and nothing uh, led up to that. Correct. No, like nothing led up. Like I had actually worked out that day. I felt fine. Like you know, went to bed, nor you know, and then all of a sudden it just. And just for disclosure, she she is an athlete, and so there's no drugs ever. Eats really clean, rarely drinks alcohol, and uh, absolutely clean. Is that uh, fair? Yeah, that that's very fair. That's very accurate, and yeah, it's that's kind of how I would describe like what kind of started you know everything. So then. How has that shaped and changed and formed you? So we're now at a point where how long have you been migraine free? So I have been, I still get migraines from time to time, but now the new drug that I'm on, the injection that I take once a month, sub-Q in each one of my thighs, like now allows the 
concoct or the the cocktail that I take to abort a headache that works a hundred percent now. So I can like get myself out of like any like migraine headache. That's awesome. Which is before that cocktail to try to abort a headache wouldn't even like touch it. Mm-hmm. But this sounds like the thing that interests me too about this story is like it sounds like this was kind of your moment where you had to come to terms with something that you couldn't actually conquer. I couldn't push through this. And what has that taught you? Well, it, it's taught me quite a bit that like there are just some things in life that like I can't like push through that I have to like stop and just kind of I don't know if like evaluates the the word to use, but just kind of just like stop and 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 realize that not everything is like I'm training for for something or like training for a sport or training for an event. And I think just I learned that mentality just to keep like training and pushing, you know, from a young age, just like when I started swimming, you know, just to like go, go, go. And then now like when I went up against something that like just completely like knocked me off of like my or knocked me out of my comfort zone, I should say, then that is where like I really kind of had to take stock in like how I was like really like living my life and where like I was putting like emphasis on things. What has changed for you, would you say? Do, is there a, a most significant thing or is it a variety of things Well, for you? I don't spend hours in the gym anymore like I used to because before mm. this all happened, like I would – you know, I, I would go to work and then like I would spend like two and a half, three hours in the gym like every day. And mention the fact that your work is like 12 hours a lot of days. Yeah. And then like I, I work like, you know, at the time I was working like 10 hour days. And so that's just what I what I did because, you know, I was I was training. But I mean, I loved what I was doing, but there was no there was no balance. All of my like everything was like pushed like way forward into just the um just like the the training aspect of things and not not so much was like put into more of like the the self care and um you know having kind of a life like outside of like the the gym and like developing like more friendships and and things like that so that's kind of been wow in my in my sense like the one saving grace because it it like this whole experience has like taught me how to try I shouldn't say Tommy but like work it's it's teaching me like how to have more balance in my life and like still know that like I'm going to be able to accomplish the things I want athletically but I don't have to be in like the gym for like two and a half three hours a day because to me like that was just normal because that's what I did in college like that's how I trained like that was just normal to me but like no it doesn't have to be that way that there's other things to do and there's other ways to find fulfillment like in my life outside of just, you know, working, working out. I think we're going to have to have a part two to this because oh, I feel like there's so much to unpack even within this then. Because now I have all of these questions about, you know, like what is it that pushed you and motivated you and how were these things modeled to you when you were younger and where is your significance coming from and how is that shifting for you? I feel like yeah. this could be yeah. an awesome conversation to continue on our next Not episode. to mention we will definitely uh, also unpack with um, uh, uh, sort of piggybacking onto Raylan Batdorf's uh, podcast about bo- uh, about body shaming and fit shaming and uh, I know you've experienced a lot of that in your life so we will absolutely have you back to unpack a lot of this stuff. 
Great. I'd love to come back and chat with you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Again, we had with us this hour, Dr. Alyssa Davies. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to What Won't We Say? 